Welcome back to Three Black Docs with Dr. Tiffany, Dr. Karen, and Dr. Zanetta. This episode is presented in partnership with Oncopeptides for Multiple Myeloma Awareness Month. All right, so uh, this month is Multiple Myeloma Awareness Month, and one of the things that's so interesting to me about multiple myeloma is how much treatments have changed. So I always tell my patients when I was a baby oncologist, for multiple myeloma, we would give these you know, strong IV chemotherapies. And, and then we switched to some, you know, better chemotherapies, but they would, you know, cause so much numbness and tingling of your hands and feet. Then we went to shots and pills. And so really the treatment for multiple myeloma has completely changed within my lifetime. And so it is, uh, kind of one of the, the, the fastest growing to me, um, industries as far as treatment goes, because there are new medications coming out. It seems like every couple of months, there's something new with multiple myeloma and our patients have so many treatment options. And so Dr. O'Connor, I want to talk with you a little bit about your experience with multiple myeloma and how you've been a part of the industry making things happen. Yeah. Um, you know, I, we should all take a moment and think back on our lives and, um, you know, we're all very lucky, blessed, whichever word you would like to use. And, um, when I think back on my experience, multiple myeloma, I think of, um, the father of a classmate of mine from medical school, um, who I treated for, four years when I was um, in Boston um, doing my fellowship and, and when I was on staff. And what I remember most was um, that this man was 6'3", and over the time of our care, literally saw him begin to shrink because of the, the impact of the myeloma on, on his bones. The options that we had for him at that point in time were really quite limited. There were steroids, which are very, very active, but very bad for the bones. Um, uh, they were uh, a chemotherapy called um, uh, Doxel, another chemotherapy called Melphalan, and uh, Celgene had just come out um, with one of the first imid therapies um, many people will remember it um, by its original name, which is thalidomide. Um, and, um, and that is where we were. Fast forward, um, gosh, almost 20 years. And there are so, the average patient when I started with my friend um, would have two to three therapies uh, before they used all of the options that were there. And now when we're working on clinical trials, there are people who have had as many as 17 different therapies. And that is a reflection of the huge amount of work that's been going on um, in multiple myeloma um, by some of these very focused myeloma centers like Arkansas, um, Etc., uh, but also um, by the focus by um, uh, companies, um, uh, many companies that have developed new agents for uh, multiple myeloma, and it's 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 exciting. 
I mean, it is absolutely exciting to see that someone can live with this disease now for 10, 20 years, and that is not atypical. But the key, the key is actually seeing someone who can help you really understand what the options are for you. Um, you mentioned um, earlier um, this idea, um, Dr. Zanetta, of cellular-based therapies, um, whether that be CAR T-cell therapies or, or whether it be antibody therapies. There are so many different options, but you can only take what you hear about. Um, and one of the opportunities that all patients should be aware of um, as they go through their courses, we're not just planning for one therapy because this is a disease that you live with, just like diabetes, just like many other. So you've got to start planning about what you're going to have. So you want to go someplace where people know not only what's available yeah. now, yes. but what's going to be available because this is what's in clinical trials. Um, and for many patients, just being able to enter a clinical trial is the way that you're really going to um, not only help yourself, but potentially help many other people who have, have the disease. Yeah. So can if you have to get myeloma, now is the time. Yeah, and can we just talk a little bit about the epidemiology, like meaning kind of the number of the incidents and, and mortality, because you know lots of folks will hear about prostate cancer and how it disproportionately impacts black people, but multiple myeloma has some stats itself um, that we really need to understand as black people so that we can make sure that we're doing what we can um, if we're symptomatic. So, you know, I should actually know these numbers off the top of my head, but I never <laughs> do. Uh, but what I can say is yeah. certainly that there is clear a clear overrepresentation and I'm so sorry for the uh, for the motorcycles in the back everyone I live on a very busy street um, and it's Friday night um, uh, there's a clear overrepresentation of, of blacks within yeah. those who have multiple myeloma yet when you look at the clinical trials that are conducted um, to uh, introduce um, new medicines um, you will see that fewer than one percent of the mm -hmm. patients um, who participate are actually African-American or black. Yes. And, right. and the reason why that's important is because 20%, 20% of multiple myeloma patients are black. 20%. That's one in five individuals with multiple myeloma actually mm -hmm. is black. And so even though multiple myeloma, there's probably only about 35,000 cases annually in the United States. As you mentioned, people are living with multiple myeloma for much longer. Uh, we cannot cure it yet. But we still have a relatively high mortality, so about 12,000 deaths every year. And we know that multiple myeloma and its precursors, you know, the MGUS, the monoclonal gammopathy of un unknown significance. Uh, undetermined significance. Undetermined significance, MGUS. Um, it impacts Blacks at a rate of two to three times that of whites. Basically, what MGUS is, this monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance, we think multiple myeloma, it, it develops on a spectrum. So you start from a benign condition and it progresses into multiple myeloma. So if we know that you have this benign precursor condition, we know how to monitor you closely. And then like Dr. O'Connor said, we can come in with treatments and plan for the long-term when treatments are needed. Here's what I always find fascinating about the disparities data in terms of myeloma. So like most other cancers, we know Black people die more. 
There are a few studies that look at patients who are on clinical trials. So with equal treatment, right, or in equal centers, that Black people survive, have equal or better survival. So there's two things there. The first is the need for more studies on these precursor conditions, right, where we know Black people have more of the precursor conditions. So then the question becomes, is there a higher death rate because of this sort of, you know, because there's just more of it from the precursor conditions. But if the survival is actually equal or better when treatments are equal, then that speaks to exactly what you were talking about, Dr. Paula, which is first access, making sure that you are having access to the most up-to-date treatments and that you are having access to stem cell transplant. The second thing, though, is the importance of clinical trials, because as you said, as you and Dr. Zanetta talked about, we went from you know two treatments to your patient who had over 17 treatments, and all of those drugs came through from clinical trials. So we talk all the time about the need to participate in clinical trials, um, particularly in in uh, diseases like myeloma, where Black people are affected more and are dying more to get that access and then to pave the way for these drugs, which become standard. But we know there are many issues of trust in the Black community. And there are also issues around where the trials are conducted, how the criteria is written. So I would love to hear from you, Dr. Paula, what do you think the role is for, from pharma in terms of addressing the issues of um, the fact that we know Black people are underrepresented in clinical trials and we know there needs to be education, there needs to be a push to have trials where people are. What do you what are your thoughts about what the responsibility is of pharma and what are what are you doing um, from your standpoint? Well, that's another one of those big questions that you've asked. <laughs> it's just how I am. They've tried to change it, but it's not going anywhere. So and pharma meaning pharmaceutical companies. Pharmaceutical companies, yes. right. Yes. So the drug yes. companies which develop the drugs and run the clinical trials. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. One of the things that I am happiest about having gone into drug development, working for a pharmaceutical company, um, despite my mother saying, well, now you're not really a doctor anymore, um, is that in wow. fact, I am now a doctor to millions of patients. And so I think yes. that one of the first things that you do in the pharmaceutical industry um, is you bring all of the sensibilities that you brought as a physician um, to the development of new products. And just as um, being one of a few Black physicians can change how Black patients are seen in your care, if not all patients, but, you, but Black patients in particular, the same happens when you start working in a pharmaceutical company. Um, so certainly um, where you run your trial is going to impact who gets enrolled in your trial. So if in fact you would like to have um, uh, blacks or under other underrepresented people of color enrolled in your trial, then you need to actually run these trials in communities where these people exist. Um, because people don't necessarily want to move while they're getting therapy. What they need is, is to be in a supportive environment. 
So we need to have our trials being conducted across a spectrum of sites that will enable us to enroll a patient population that is representative of the patients who will actually get the disease. So that's something that I and other people of color bring to the table because we're very, very aware of it. At the same time, obviously, I'm also aware of um, the history, if you will, of, uh, of clinical trials and how people of color, Black people in particular, have been impacted, whether it be the Tuskegee experiment, whether it be, there are many, many other um, uh, uh, incidents, right? But one of my goals is also that in industry to be seen as someone who is responsible for running a clinical trial, um, that patients know, wait a minute, that's somebody who looks like me. I don't think that they are going to try to hurt me, but I can't reverse history, right? Um, um, and so all I can try to do is make people aware, whether it be by making myself known or by making sure that the informed consents and everything um, that we provide to patients before they enroll in a trial address all of their concerns, including some of the historical concerns. Um, um, and then I think what we have done um, uh, at the organizations that I've worked in is we've also tried to get rid of the barriers um, for patient participation around monies, um, time, um, uh, you know, transportation. So how can we make it possible for people to participate? They want to, but they shouldn't have to bear the cost of participating when right. they are actually doing a service by, um, by participating. So there are a series of organizations, um, uh, uh, whether they be um, patient advocacy organizations, there are other organizations that we are actually supporting. So you can look at for the, you know, the, um, the Lazarex Foundation, for example, mm -hmm. um, we support them with grants so that they can support patients who enter not only our programs, but other programs as well. Because once again, I, I just want treatments to be available for patients. It's not just mine. Um, it's all of our responsibility in the industry to make sure that we get good representation. So those are amongst the things that we do. But hiring people who look like the patients that we're going to take care of so that their issues can be brought in as trials are being developed, I think is another really, really critical thing. Um, yeah. That's and, and we are over here saying hallelujah and amen, because yeah. the barriers to clinical trials are, are, are actually, they're a bane of, of me getting patients on clinical trials. I mean, um, if you have to come back and forth to the clinic you know, for unnecessary blood tests or, 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 you know, you have to take off work for X, Y, and Z. I, I don't think that people realize how much that impacts people who were already disproportionately um, impacted. So the fact that you're recognizing this, you're in the room where this is happening yes, and you're making moves to try to change it. I mean, it's so important. Yeah, It really is. 
And I think the financial toxicity associated with, with you know, cancer uh, care in general is ridiculous, right? The number one cause of bankruptcy, of medical bankruptcy, is cancer care in the United States. Um, but we know that there have been some constraints, if you will, put on some pharmaceutical, you know, pharma, pharma with respect to reimbursements for that. Um, and I think there are some individuals and organizations, patient advocacy groups, including the Lazarus Cancer Foundation, who's a great partner of ours, uh, to really try to make the FDA and and the government to say, you know what, it's not inducement. It, it doesn't mean that you're paying people to be on clinical trials because obviously we don't want to make it seem like, oh, well, the poor people, we're, they're going to get money by doing the clinical trial. No, we just want to recognize that, number one, they are giving back. They're giving to society and we appreciate what they're doing. You know, Dr. Z mentioned the issue um, with respect to how clinical trials are designed. I think, you know, eligibility, you know, um, uh, requirements can sometimes be a little bit of a, of a challenge, um, as can tests that are unnecessary. So can you just speak to that for a minute in terms of not only eligibility, but how, how clinical trials are, are designed? Yeah. So when people talk about clinical trials, I talk about them as if they are one thing. And they are not. They are all designed for different purposes. Um, so there are very early studies um, which are designed to understand, hey, what's the right dose for this medicine? Can I actually give this medicine safely? Um, those would be those phase one trials, if you will. Um, then there are uh, clinical trials where we are trying to understand, hmm, is this drug active in someone's tumor? Um, and so those are uh, our phase two trials. So we, you know, uh, we don't really know whether it's going to work, but we're, we're hoping, right? Um, phase three is when you really think, okay, look, this drug, I think it may be active. And now I want to compare it to something that I already know um, is active. Um, lastly, there are phase four trials where you already know that the drug is active, but you're trying to look at it in special populations in some cases. So people over 65 who weren't included in the initial clinical trial, you're better, you're trying to better refine your understanding of the activity of, of, of the, of the drug. There is also something that I, I really wish people were aware of that there are often expanded access programs um, um, or trials. Um, and this is when we know that a medicine is potentially active. Um, it's uh, the, the sponsor or the pharmaceutical company um, that is developing this product um, is going to um, submit an application to the FDA and they are making the drug available um, to patients with need um, uh, early. Um, so as a patient, what I think is really important to understand is it's not just one clinical trial. There are many different sorts of settings that you can participate in. And if you don't feel like, I don't want to be a guinea pig, fine. You don't have to be a quote unquote guinea pig, right? If you're getting onto an expanded access program, you're actually potentially going to get a novel drug that has already been shown to be active that is all is being evaluated by the fda you can get that early and most importantly for free we have to take a break we'll be right back 
This is Dr. Zanetta, and this is a Multiple Myeloma Minute. Did you know that Black people have more delays in the diagnosis of multiple myeloma and receive effective therapies such as stem cell transplant less often? Y'all, this has got to change. If you have multiple myeloma, talk to your healthcare provider to make sure you are using the most effective therapies. This is Dr. Zanetta, and this is your Multiple Myeloma Minute. Want more Three Black Docs? Visit 3blackdocs.com to meet the docs. Read our blog and get access to more 3BD content. I think what's critical is that people are aware that A, there are a whole bunch of different types of clinical trials and some of them are more likely to give you access to really good medical care. Um, Or let me take that back. What they do is they give you access to a medication, but all of these clinical trials, phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four, what they really give you is great medical care. And that is the key, right? So there are times when you can get an approved drug or a drug that everyone already knows that works. But if you aren't in a great partnership with the people who are taking care of you, you can still not benefit as much as someone who is working very closely uh, with their care team to get care. And that is one thing that all clinical trials provide. They provide an avenue to having someone really, really work with you Um, to understand how you are tolerating a therapy, how it's impacting you. They're looking at you, asking you every day what's going on, or maybe not every day, but whatever the schedule is. Um, And that's really important because if nobody asks, you may not say, because you don't know it's something to think about. And just by virtue of someone saying, hey, is this bothering you? They can actually do something so that it stops bothering you and you can stay on your therapy and ultimately benefit. So key thing, lots of different types of clinical trials. All of them give you high quality care. Some of them give you access to novel agents. Some of them will even give you access to agents that are going to be approved very soon in an expanded access program for free. I love that is great information. I love that you talked about that because we love free, as we say, free 99. So we (laughs) need to know that these programs are available. Um, Another question I would just ask for you to speak to is the safety of trials, because we talk a lot in terms of trying to um, dispel the idea that uh, the, the trials are run without oversight, you know, and so we've talked about the process of a trial uh, being accepted or approved through an IRB and then having like an independent um, data monitoring committee to look at, you know, safety data as it comes in. Can you speak a little bit, and you you just started it, which was great about, you know, looking at individual patients, what's going on with them. But can you talk about the safeguards that are in place to monitor safety signals over the whole trial and what happens if a safety signal is found. And, and this is so relevant because of the COVID yes. vaccine clinical yes. trial and, and it's so <laughs> relevant. So thank you for, for tackling this. So um, we talked about there being four different phases of clinical trial. Um, there is no phase that does not have safety monitoring 
um, included. So I think that's that's the first thing. Every single trial has safety monitoring baked in. Um, um, in the phase one trials, um, um, you uh, where people are trying to find the dose, every week someone is talking about the safety of the three to six patients that have been dosed or treated with a given therapy. So there will never be more discussion about safety than in a phase one clinical trial. Um, when we move through the trials, the phase twos, the phase threes, certainly every clinical trial um, um, has um, a component that is dedicated solely to safety, meaning we want to understand the safety. So a clinical trial is designed to ask a question. Quite often, the first question is, hey, does this drug have activity in your disease or against COVID or whatever? But the second big question is, is it safe? What are we seeing in people who are being treated with these therapies? And those are all captured um, and put into a very large database. And not only are you looking at the data from that one clinical trial, but you're looking at other clinical trials being run for that agent and comparing and contrasting. And that is also another reason why it's so critically important to have broad representation of ethnicities and uh, diversity writ large, because we won't know what's safe in people of color, in women, in in petite women, in um, in morbidly obese women or men, unless those people are in the trial, and that's when you start getting into trouble. When we have to say, "Well, we think it's safe, um, but we've never really looked." So we need people's participation. Um, in even after a drug has been approved. Um, we are still looking at safety information. And so that's why it's also important if you have a reaction to a drug to let your doctor know so that he or she can actually report it. Um, and all of that information is analyzed on an annual basis. Um, every drug that is out there um, submits uh, or every manufacturer of a drug um, submits to the FDA on an annual basis something called um, uh, a DSUR, um, it's a safety report. Um, and in that safety report, you literally go through, here are all the studies that are going on. This is the, 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 the activity question that we're asking. And these are the safety questions that we're asking. And this is the safety data that we have seen. Um, and you, you break the data down by a wide variety of uh, categories, gender, age, ethnicity, um, previous health conditions, um, and all of that is, is reviewed every single year by the FDA and more frequently by the company. And then in addition to that, depending on the study, you may in fact have what we call a, da a data safety monitoring board, an individual group of people who have no relationship to the company or to the FDA who perform um, a review of the data to make sure 
that we're not missing anything. So you've got three ways at a minimum that your safety is always being reviewed when you're in a clinical trial. That's awesome. Thank you so much for laying that out because I think we are, we keep trying to, you know, get the message out there of what the reality is, you know, in terms of how trials are run today, you know, as opposed to the history that we have in our community. So I think that's so important. Thank you for that. Right. And and really it's important because the treatments that we have now are because of the people who participated in clinical trials you know, before. So because of those, you know, volunteers, we know that we don't have to use those chemotherapy drugs and high, high doses of steroids that Dr. O'Connor was talking about, you know, multiple myeloma and in uh, cancer treatments in general. So it's incredibly important. And honestly, Dr. O'Connor, I'd I'd like to thank you for your time. I've, uh, I've enjoyed this uh, tremendously. So Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. I've had a great time as well. I, um, you know, hey, anytime you let me know, I'll, I'll come. <laughs> don't, don't, don't <laughs> Fancy drinks. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, what we like to do in terms of wrapping up is just have and make sure that um, our listeners have one point to take home with them. And Dr. Tiffany, one, please. So we're going to go around and I'm going to give Dr. No. the last no. one. So, You're not setting me up like this. You so always we'll, start with me and then you get mad at me because I don't have a point. I'm going no, last. No, 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 you usually have more than one point. That's, so that's what I'm saying. I'm going last so I could just think of one. Okay. You always make me go first and then I have like five. Okay, so, so we'll have doctors in that in terms of point. And again, remember, this is Multiple Myeloma Awareness Month. We're so grateful for, for um, to Oncopeptize for sponsoring um, this uh, podcast. Um, and we're, we're very grateful, very grateful for Dr. Um, O'Connor for being here and just sharing her breadth of knowledge. Dr. Z, um, Multiple Myeloma Month, is there anything in particular from today's um, um, podcast that you want folks to take home? I think the important point about multiple myeloma is that this is now a thought of a thought of as a chronic disease. So this used to be a deadly disease. And now because of all the treatments we have, because of clinical trials, and there's so many things coming through the pipeline, so many things that have recently got approved, this is now a very treatable condition. And I want you to expect to be treated and and to be treated for years. So um, also just with the, I know, I'm sorry, one more thing. But, but, but I have I have another one, but, but there was another important point that Dr. O'Connor made at the, in the last podcast. And that was just about being open and flexible. She had no idea that she was going to be a doctor, but you know what? She did her best in everything that she did. That's what I got from her. She was a fabulous tennis player, fashion designer, and why not become a doctor? So like whatever you do, give it your all. And you never know, you you may be awesome like Dr. O'Connor. So since Dr. Zanetta took my thought because she, I said one, but she decided she's going for two or three. um, Let's, let's say I did actually enjoy also Dr. O'Connor's point about medicine allowing us to have options for every phase of our life. Um, all three of us, you know, Dr. Tiff, Dr. Zanetta, and myself, we have transitioned our roles. And I think being flexible 
number one, allowed us to do that. And there may have been some consternation as we were thinking about leaving academia or moving away from clinic, et cetera. But I tell you, having a, a degree in medicine does allow folks that flexibility. And please take a look and see whether or not there might be ways for you to get a degree. If you're interested in medicine, there might be ways for it to get, be paid for or to have less debt coming out. So please do not allow finances to dissuade you from considering a career in medicine. Dr. Tiff, your one point before we go to our guest. Yeah, it didn't work. Okay, so I have a comment and a takeaway. My comment is... <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Paula, for joining because, you know, we started this whole podcast just because we were so upset about, you know, disparities and the fact that the Black people die more from cancer and feeling just like we weren't doing enough to really impact that. And we talk a lot about the fact that we think it's going to take investment and attention from all different angles in the medical community. So. You're the first person to join us from the pharmaceutical industry. And it, I am really encouraged and optimistic about the fact that we have doctors like you who are in leadership positions, who are thinking about these issues, thinking about how it impacts um, our community. And so I, I'm really encouraged by that. I think, so thank you. Again, I think yeah. the takeaway for, thank you. So I think the takeaway for the listeners is just to really remember about the safety of clinical trials, right? And so if you're offered a trial and you're hesitant because you're not sure, you know, this issue of being a guinea pig or, you know, are they are they not doing what they say they're doing, like Tuskegee and all those things, that that really doesn't happen anymore um, and that there are many safety, um, many safety mechanisms in place. So that's what I would say to take away for the listeners. And thanks again. Thank you, Dr. Tiff. All right, Dr. Paula, you get the last word. So I'm going to follow Dr. Tiff's um, uh, uh, approach of a comment <laughs> and, then, and then the takeaway. Okay, um, all y'all are canceled, I'm just saying. <laughs> you can't change me. Sorry. So uh, my comment is this has been really fun, and I really thank you all um, for, uh, for having me. Um, I've really enjoyed it. And I think you provide an incredible service um, uh, to all of your listeners. Um, so that's the comment. Um, thank you. Um, the takeaway is um, for everybody who is listening, um, whether you are the patient or whether a loved one is the patient, is that you have the power. Um, you make the decisions. Um, and when I say you make the decisions, you make decisions with good advice. Obviously you shouldn't just make it in a, in a, in a, in a, in a vacuum, um, in terms of your knowledge, but it is as important for you to seek out good care as it is to accept what people are or are not offering. You are in charge. And so as you are thinking about your disease, whether it be myeloma or otherwise, know that this is the golden age of drug development. There are many options and opportunities out there. And you should be looking at clinicaltrials.gov, uh, which is a site where all clinical trials have to be listed and you can find out whether there are trials that are appropriate for you. If that's too 
confusing because it can be written in doctor speak, then there are advocacy groups that you can reach out to um, for any disease, including multiple myeloma, um, that I would urge you, beg you to go to so that you can understand all of the options that are available to you. And that is what's going to allow you to live the longest and hopefully the best life that you possibly can. So thanks. Woo, that was, that awesome. was awesome. And and I think we need say nothing else. Dr. Paula O'Connor, thank you so very much for joining us on Three Black Thoughts. Oncopeptides is a rapidly growing biotech company focused on the development of targeted therapies for difficult to treat hematological diseases. The company is science-driven and committed to bringing innovation to patients with an unmet medical need and improving patient lives. Like what you hear? Make sure you rate and subscribe. Three Black Docs is available wherever you get your podcasts. Three Black Docs is not intended as medical advice. All opinions are our own. Three Black Docs is produced by Winx Productions.